Well, welcome again, church, to our midweek devotional refresh. We're looking at close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. And I'm just reminded again, I mentioned it last, last Wednesday, how Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says how beholding the glory of the Lord we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. That this, this process of, of getting close up to Jesus, looking specifically at the glory of his life, and, and the particular promise Paul makes, that that has a way of changing us. And, it, and that it's incremental, one degree of glory to another. It isn't any one study. It's that phrase that I pulled out a few, a few weeks ago, being devoted to the word, and specifically devoted to the word, as it centers on the glory of the Lord. That has uh, incredible potential, even when we can't gather. But when we can focus our minds on the glory of the Lord in God's word, we can still together be uh, transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's good church. It's missing some aspects, but it can still be transformational in my life and, and in yours. So let's get right into it. Devotional studies, of course, uh, not, not deep theological, but devotional studies feeding on the glory of the Lord in the Gospel of Mark. Point number one, and tonight we're going to look at, if you have a Bible, we'll look at Mark 1, 40 to around chapter 2, verse 12. Just some incidents from the life of our Lord. First, uh, look at Mark 1, 40 and 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. It doesn't just say healthy, make me clean, and I want to explain that in just a minute. And moved with pity, he, he stretched out his hand. Jesus stretched out his hand and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made, he was made clean. Let me just point out something obvious, but I think uh, important enough and frequently lost sight of, particularly in some extreme teachings on divine healing. And what I see over and over again, you'll see it as we go through Mark's gospel, that every healing miracle of Jesus with one exception that we'll look at, every healing miracle of Jesus was immediate and definite. You can see it in 1, 25 to 27, 30 to 31, 41 and 42, and one exception that we'll look at in Mark chapter, chapter 8. But the point I'm making here is, uh, no one ever crawled away from Jesus sort of confessing, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm healed, when they obviously weren't. And you don't find Jesus endorsing that, and you don't find Jesus encouraging that. When people were healed, they knew they were healed. Jesus saw they were healed. The crowd saw they were healed. And the, the, and the miracle of healing is almost always specific, complete, and immediate. It, it doesn't come about because these people are trying to whip up some positive mental energy with the words they're speaking. So that they're, they're just, okay, I'm healed, I'm healed. I don't feel any better, but I'm healed. You just don't see that in the New Testament. You don't see it anywhere. I said I wanted to come back to this idea, the leper cleansed. 
the disease wasn't actually um, contagious, but it but it was an Old Testament picture. You don't have a lot of a lot of uh, unfolding. The the progress of Revelation hasn't gone very far, and and God looks for ways to picture deep spiritual truths. And leprosy in the old covenant especially, was typically this picture of uncleanness. The, the man comes to Jesus and asks to be made clean. And so you had this picture. It was a, a, a type where leprosy pictured, it pictured the disease of sin and the effects of sin. It was something no one could cure. It was something no one could fix. And it separated people. And it separated them uh, on so many different levels in their society. So what you have here is this picture of Jesus and his ability to cleanse the the uncleansable under the old covenant. I said there was one exception to that immediate healing rule, and it's and it's in Mark eight twenty two to twenty five. Mark eight twenty two to twenty five. It reads like this. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him, begged Jesus, to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. That's interesting. Not in front of all the people. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? And he, that's the blind man, he, he looked up and said, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So this is not clear vision. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, And he sent him home saying, don't even enter the village. He didn't want this to be a a gimmick or a stunt for the crowds. But it does beg the question. The question is, could Jesus have healed this man's eyes immediately? Well, I think think we'd have to agree he, he could. And so it begs the question, why didn't he? Why in this case do you have this sort of this two stage with a question in the middle? How's your how's your vision? How do you see? And I'm, I'm convinced that the reason is Jesus, Jesus wants to see uh, not some kind of manufactured faith. He, he, he loves the honesty of this man. There's the test of whether he's content to receive less than what he asked for. You know, if, if you were blind and you could see a little bit, it'd be very tempting to say, well, this is, this is not bad. And Jesus, I think, is testing this man, testing his honesty so no one ever crawled away from Jesus saying, I'm healed, I'm healed. You have this, this uh, dramatic outward working, and Jesus always insisted on that kind of verifiable miracle. Two, look at verses 43 and 44. And Jesus sternly charged him. This is the leper that had been made clean. And sent him away at once and said, see that you... Say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. Offer your cleansing, for your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so Jesus commands this healed leper to be silent. And yet you have to say, so why? What's going on here? 
two things. Jesus didn't want the masses following him just because he worked miracles. You can see that John, the apostle John, gives the best indicator. The disciples are all pleased at the throng that are following Jesus after they see his miracles. And, and it says, John says clearly Jesus knew what was in their heart. It didn't excite Jesus all that much. The people liked to see the neat things Jesus did and they wanted to throng around him. So Jesus wasn't here to establish that kind of kingdom with that kind of immediacy. And so don't, he tells them, just be quiet. Be quiet about this. You'll see that repeated through the ministry of Jesus. Secondly, go show yourself, offer what Moses commanded. Make this process complete so the miracle wouldn't serve as a testimony. That's in verse 44, that word, testimony. It wouldn't serve as a testimony until it was verified. And and you just get the feeling Jesus wasn't working against this idea of of having things verified by a doctor in a medical community. He loved working under the endorsement of authentic, verified miracles, true spiritual works, miracles of healing. They never shy away from verification. Don't let anybody tell you that you demonstrate great faith by not having some alleged miracle confirmed with your doctor. Jesus would have none of that. He would have none of that attitude. Three. Mark moves into the healing of this paralytic. It's in chapter 2, and it's in the first 12 verses. I'm going to read the 12 verses because it's such a great story. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So they, they hear Jesus is there. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, I love that phrase. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. What? Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. They all knew what Jesus was doing, claiming divinity here. They all saw it. This idea that Jesus never claimed to be divine is is just, it doesn't stand up. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, I would think it's a no-brainer. It's a strange question. I mean, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but to make a paralyzed person get up and walk, it seems to me that's that's the greater miracle. But that's not where Jesus is going. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, verse 9, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? 
but that you, speaking to the crowd, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, now he repeats, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. If there's anything that ought to jump out at us all, it's that in the eyes of Jesus, forgiveness, whenever God forgives me, Don Horbin, I think of it far too lightly. I mean, it's kind of, I do my best to follow Jesus. I mess up. I apologize. Sorry. And he just forgives me and on I go. And if there's anything this text um, vivifies before us, it's that, it's that forgiveness is, is an incredible miracle of grace, that we can be forgiven at all, and that ongoingly, ongoingly we receive grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness is a, is a mighty miracle that when we lose sight of, uh, it, it takes the song, the joy, the wonder out of our walk with the Lord. You know what else I see in this passage? Is that your faith can help someone else. Jesus ministered to this paralytic. Verse 5 says, when he saw their faith. I don't know, was this man just too weak to believe for himself? Was he not in a state where he could actually recognize and put his trust in Jesus? We don't know. We're not, we're not told. But we do know we should never just be too quick. When someone is prayed for and the need isn't met, it's, it's a cruel thing to immediately assume, well, that person just didn't have enough faith. When Jesus saw their faith, we don't even know the names of these four men, and yet, and yet what, a, what a miracle is brought about because of their, their faith. Four, you kind of see the nature of true faith in this miracle. It's in that fifth verse. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. So somehow it's, it's, it's included, it, but it's more than just a positive mental state or, or trying to picture something in your head. That, that faith, faith is always pushing through obstacles. Faith is active. You see the steps of faith. It's more than just a, even an accurate mental conception about Jesus. That's vitally important, but it's not all. Five. In verses five to 12, I want to see three signs of Christ's divinity. Mark two, verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, so he sees what they're thinking. He said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? They, they must have looked up when he spoke. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? 
but that you may know. This is, this is a condescension, doing something visible so that they can see the power of Jesus and then believe his power for the forgiveness of sins. That's what's going on here. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now he turns to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God. I bet you not the scribes and the Pharisees. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The three signs that I see here quickly are his, his claiming to forgive sins. Now, notice, though, what's going on here. Jesus speaks to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if you come up to me and you throw me out of my seat on the bus and you sit where I was sitting, I can decide whether or not I want to forgive you. It's up to me because you wronged me. But if you come on the bus, grab me, throw me out of my seat and sit in my seat and somebody sitting over here in row 43 says, it's all right. I forgive you. I might well say, well, that's all well and good for you to forgive him. He didn't take your seat. He took my seat. And so what you see here is Jesus forgiving the sins of this paralytic. Jesus wasn't even with this paralytic when most of those sins were committed. And so you see, you see divinity here. You see, you see that all sins ultimately are against God and Jesus is God and he has the right to forgive everyone's sins. Secondly, you see how Jesus knew their thoughts and their intentions in that eighth verse. He sees what they're thinking. And third, he healed the sickness instantly and, and completely. So you have these three signs just in rapid succession of the greatness, the might, what Paul called the glory of our Lord, beholding the glory of our Lord. That's what we're looking at here. Is everybody transformed from one degree of glory to another? No. What keeps people from being transformed from one degree of glory to another when they look at the glory of Jesus? It's the last point, six. The dangerous sin of unbelief. It's in verse six and seven of Mark 2. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's such a beautiful balance in God's word when you look at it in context like this. See, if some people followed Jesus too quickly because they just like seeing all the neat stuff that he did, if some followed too quickly, others followed far too slowly. Usually those in leadership, people with something at stake, position, position, pride, material, prosperity, power, influence, people like that, for them to believe Jesus requires a humbling, a self-denial. And, and we start to see, this is brilliant, we start to see the real roots of unbelief. And it isn't that there aren't enough signs. And it isn't that there isn't enough evidence. The same is true today. There's a moral foundation to unbelief. These people don't believe, the scribes, the Pharisees, the people who are just upset with all the glory that they see unfolding in front of them. It's because there's a price to following Jesus. 
they can't afford to believe. Jesus spots that, and he says that. The signs were all there. They were numerous. They were gracious. They were striking. But it was pride and a corrupt heart that kept them from following Jesus. You're going to see this throughout throughout the book of Mark, that how important it is to, to behold the glory of our Lord on the face of the evidence and, and dealing with pride, self-rule, and the things that would crowd out the seed of the word from our hearts. And so Mark so consistently lays this out before us in our text that we're studying tonight. Let's pray. Oh, there's glory in the person of Jesus. Glory to cleanse from sin as pictured in that healing of the leopard. Glory to the meeting of human need with a supernatural touch. Keep keep our hearts um, hungry for the glory of Jesus. Keep our hearts undistracted from the pursuit of Jesus. Keep our hearts free from idols so that the glory of Jesus is, is, is not something seen merely academically, but transformationally in our hearts and in our lives. Thank you for your word. We're, we're quite blessed. Not many generations ago, people who were distant and apart could never study the Bible like we do together. Thank you. Thank you for all your gracious provision for your church. Keep our hearts, keep our hearts turned toward you. Keep our hearts warmly devoted to your word. And let the glory of Jesus just continually transform our lives from one degree to another, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Sunday morning, 10 o'clock keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. We'll be studying that in the morning. And at night, I want to look at, we're going to break away. I want to do just a sit-down pastoral talk on two biblical truths destroying the foundations of racism. I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and I want our church just to look at it together. And then after the service tonight, our whole corporate prayer time will be themed around that study So God bless you, church. And I say it all the time. And, you know, in some of these days, you start to see the relevance of it. Love one another. God bless you.